keep your bulletin open to our passage in 1 Peter 2, or better yet, uh, have your Bible open there, and uh, we will continue our study of 1 Peter. You remember last week I read you this great line from E. Stanley Jones, the early Christians did not say in dismay, look what the world has come to, but in delight, look what has come to the world, speaking of Jesus. Last week, uh, Peter told us that our purpose in the world as God's elect exiles is to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Well, now... For the rest of this letter, Peter will show us how we, with our lips and our lives, can say to our neighbors and the nations and the next generation with delight, look what has come to the world. And the way Peter instructs us to do that is a bit odd, but let's pray and we'll find out what that is. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for preserving it so that we could grow by it, so that we could know you, so that we could know how to be in relationship with you, so that we could know our purpose for being here, so that we could know that Jesus came to redeem us and make us new. Would you do that even now as we sit under your word? Make us new by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. There's a letter that uh, scholars have found, historians have found, uh, that was written about 70 years after Peter wrote this letter. It was written by a Greek man man named, uh, I'll do the best I can with this name, uh, Diognetus. Um, And so it's famously now called the Epistle epistle, uh, to Diognetus. It was a letter written uh, in A.D. 130, uh, and it was written to another prominent man in response to this man's questions about Christianity and Christians. And this this is what the letter says. It describes what Christians were like only 70 years after Peter wrote his letter. It says, Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. For nowhere do they live in cities of their own, nor do they speak some unusual dialect, nor do they practice an eccentric lifestyle. While they live in both Greek and barbarian cities, as each one's lot was cast, and follow the local customs in dress and food and other aspects of life, at the same time, they demonstrate the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. So they have not taking the option of walling themselves off as a holy huddle and living in their own cities and their own societies. They've spread throughout all the other cities, and they live as citizens there, but they have this remarkable, uh, eccentric uh, flavor about their lives that they have a, a different citizenship. He goes on, They live in their own countries, but only as aliens. They participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. They marry like everyone else 
and have children, but they do not expose their offspring. In other words, they marry and have children, but they don't kill their children. It was, it was practiced that particularly female babies were often left exposed to die because they were unwanted. But the Christians don't do that. He says, they share their food, but not their wives. They are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws. Indeed, in their private lives, they transcend the laws. And remarkably, that's a great description of what Peter has urged his churches to do in his letter. This is what he says in verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's, that's what that letter I just read uh, did. It was, it was a praise for the way these people lived as exiles. Well, the interesting part is how Peter expected his churches, how he expects us to keep our conduct honorable among unbelievers. What, Peter, would that look like in real life? And he's about to tell us. But before we get there, I want to play a little word association with Jimmy D here for a moment. So, if you would take out your bulletin or something, um, I'm going to read to you four different phrases. Um, And when I read those four different phrases, each time I read one, uh, I want you to write down the first word that comes to your mind and the first emotion that comes to your heart when I read this phrase, okay? So, four times, read the first word that comes to your mind and the first phrase, and after we're done, you may want to make sure you shred this piece of paper. Okay, so the first phrase I'm going to read to you, I want you to write down the first word that comes to your mind, the first emotion that comes to your heart. Here we go. Phrase number one, President Donald Trump. First word, first emotion. Okay? Second phrase, uh, for anyone who's not a student, I have a different phrase, and for students, I have one for you. So hang on. First, for non-students, your boss. What's the first word you think of? What's the first emotion that comes to your heart? Or students, your teachers or professors. All right, get that? Number three, this is for everybody. When your father, what's the first word? What's the first emotion? And the fourth phrase, first word, first emotion, the elders of Mountain Fellowship.
Now, by a show of hands, don't worry, this isn't going to be too... By a show of hands, I want to know how many of you put a negative word in the first blank of any of those four? A negative word in the first blank of any of those four? Raise your hand. That looks like most people, okay? How about, how many of you put a negative emotion in any of those four blanks on the emotions? Very similar response. Looks like most of us. Um, it is interesting, isn't it, that we struggle with people who have been placed over us in some sort of position of authority. In fact, I looked out as I was doing this exercise, and many of you refused to do what I said. You just looked at me like, I ain't doing that. <laughs> so, you know, I'm used to it. Um, and I would be doing the same thing. I'm not doing this. This is dumb. Okay. So we struggle with this, don't we? I know I do. Um, we struggle with authority. And it's been that way ever since the Garden of Eden. And even the times when I do submit to authority, I oftentimes do it without humility and begrudgingly. I complain about it. And I'm sure... Many of you are like me. Uh, but, but Peter has this odd way of telling us how to live and speak as those who proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. He goes into this section where he's about to tell us, be subject to this one, be subject to this one, be subject to this one, be subject to this one. Listen to this. In our passage this morning, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, emperors, governors. So he tells us to be subject to civic rulers. Next week, we're going to see that he tells us, he uses this phrase, be subject again. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Uh, for us in our context, that's uh, being subject to employers in the marketplace. Uh, in three weeks, because we're going to take a break after next week, but in three weeks, we get to come to this fun verse. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Submit to their own husbands. So in the family, he asks us to be subject. And then later in chapter 5, when we get there, it's in the context of the church. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Well, thanks, Peter. I will not be attending church the next few weeks. Just kidding, right? Um, but So what does this phrase, be subject, mean? Uh, I want to help us with this because it's, it's easy to assume that it means the worst possible thing. Um, one of the common commentaries that I'm finding very helpful uh, in studying First Peter describes this word this way. Uh, it says, its meaning is closer to subordinate than it is to submit or obey. It's about finding one's proper place and acting accordingly rather than giving unquestioning obedience to whatever anyone, including govern governing authorities, may command. Its point is to urge Christians to bring the same sort of responsible activity that's characterized by love and humility to their secular 
relationships that they bring to their Christian relationships. So it's about finding one's proper place and acting accordingly in the order that God has established. Uh, This morning in adult Sunday school, I didn't plan this, but this was the very topic uh, that we discussed. And uh, this is one of the things that David Kessler said this morning. God establishes order for the flourishing of the world. And so I think what Peter is telling us when he says be subject in all these different areas is he's saying align your life to the order which God has set for your flourishing and for the flourishing of others. It's, it's kind of like the reason that we used this illustration this morning. It's the reason that these games that we love to watch and participate in have referees. Of course, everybody loves the referees, right? But, uh, but the referees are there not to uh, clamp down on the game and ruin the game by managing it so tightly. They're there to just make sure that everybody flourishes within the rule system of the game so that they can... Enjoy the game. And, and nobody likes to watch a ball game that is hyper-managed by referees who call every little thing. That's why we yell at the television, let them play, ref! Right? So God has established this order with these referees, these governing authorities, who are there to keep order so that the world might flourish. And I know, I know what you're thinking, because I've thought it as I've looked at this, is, but what if they're bad refs? What if they're bad governing authorities? What if they are not doing what they're meant to do, which is to provide order that helps people flourish? Well, God's in charge of them, and God will deal with them. They are accountable to God. But Peter's not talking to them today. He's talking to us. He's talking to the people of God and how we are to respond in our hearts and lives to those whom he has placed to keep order. So there's another passage. There are other places in Scripture where where God deals with um, those he's put in places of governing authority. And um, go back and read more of Daniel, and you'll see how God dealt with Nebuchadnezzar. So, this morning, and for the next few weeks, we talk about what does it mean for us to be subject in the order that God has set? And this morning, what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven while we're also citizens in the places God has put us? So, the three observations that I put in the bulletin for you this morning, I want to make sure you understand that I didn't come up with these. There's a there's a, uh, a rector of St. Helen's Bishop's Gate in London. He was the rector there for, or the pastor there, if you will, for uh, many years from 1961 to 1998. And he came up with these three observations about this passage and about this whole idea of submission in First Peter. And so I'm leaning on him for this, and I want you to, I want you to know that. Um, But these are the three observations he makes. He says, submission to authority is part and proof of our submission to Christ. Submission to authority is powerfully effective for Christ. And submission to authority is a picture of authentic Christianity. So let's look at those 
uh, quickly and then we will gather at the table. Submission to authority is part and proof of our submission to Christ. Look, this, this idea that, that in submitting to the civil authorities we are submitting to God is all th- it's in every verse. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake. Verse 14, be subject to emperors and governors as sent by him. Verse 15, for this, being subject to ruling authorities, is the will of God. Verse 16, use your freedom in Christ for living as slaves of God, which is what we are. And then verse 17 summarizes all that by saying, fear God. So this whole little passage shows us that our submission to the authorities God has placed over us is actually part of our submission to God. And so... um, in doing that, he just follows along with uh, the rest of the New Testament, with Jesus and the apostles. In Matthew 28, <clears throat> just before he resurrected, Jesus, uh, just before Jesus ascended after his resurrection, uh, he said to Peter and the other disciples, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Peter will say later in chapter 3, we'll get to this in a few weeks, Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So Jesus has all authority. Romans 13, which we looked at in Sunday school this morning, and I commend it to you this week. Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So here's the point Peter's trying to make. Human human authorities are sent by Jesus. Therefore, it is his, his will that we are subordinate to them so that we do it for his sake as his slaves who fear him. So, so we obey God by being subordinate under the authority of the people he's put over us. But, but are there times when we obey God by disobeying our governing authorities? Peter would say yes. In Acts chapter 5, Peter told the authorities who were his authorities... He told those authorities who were commanding him and the other apostles to stop preaching about Jesus. He said to them, we must obey God rather than men. So if our human authorities tell us to do anything that would require us to disobey King Jesus, then we obey God rather than men. So yes, there there is that. So Peter made it clear that our submission to human authorities is part of our submission to Jesus but it's also proof of our submission to Jesus. Think about this. How do I know that I've submitted to Jesus? Is it because I said a prayer one day? Is it because, as I did when I was 10 years old, I responded to the preacher's call to walk the aisle and come down and give my life to Jesus to follow him? Does that prove that I've submitted my life to Jesus? Is it because I go to church every Sunday? Well, for some of you, it may mean you've submitted to your parents, but does it mean that we've submitted 
to Jesus that we do these things or say some of the things we've said, pray the prayer? Peter's saying in this passage that one proof of our vertical submission to Jesus is my horizontal submission to the humans he's put over me. One proof of my submission to Jesus is that I submit to the ones he's put over me. And then he gives two examples. In verse 14, the local, state, and national governing authorities Jesus has set over me were sent by him. First, to protect me, he says, they punish those who do evil. So that's, that's good. They're there for our flourishing, to protect us from those who do evil. But they're also there to provide for me because they're there to praise those who do good and so that those who do good will continue to do good and help all of us flourish. And no, uh, they don't always do the things that God has told them to do as they should or when they should, but, and I wish Peter would have given us some sort of loophole uh, to not be respectful of people we don't think are doing their job, but he doesn't. He just says, be subject to the ones Jesus has sent. So that's one example of how we prove our submission to God. But another example is in verse 16. And in verse 16, he's saying that the way I use my freedom in Christ is proof of my submission to Christ. We are free in Christ, but we are slaves of Christ. And so, because I'm free in Christ and Jesus is my king, does that mean I can put a Jesus is my king bumper sticker on my car? and wear a t-shirt that says, no government but God, and then behave as if I'm above all other laws because, after all, I'm a citizen of heaven. Well, no, Peter says, don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but live as servants of God. What does that mean? Don't, don't use your freedom in Christ as a cover-up for living a me-first life where I do what I want to do. Um... I obey the laws that I want to obey. He says, instead, use your freedom to live as servants of God. That's a, that's a you-first life where we look at God and we look at others and we go, you first. So yes, we are free, but we're not free from the service of God. We are free to serve God. And to serve God, I must serve those he sent to me, including authorities. So, Peter is telling us a lifestyle of submission is an indispensable part of and proof of our submission to God. We can't wiggle our way out of it. But secondly, submission to authority is, is powerfully effective for Christ. In verses 15 and 16, Peter says this, This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And then verse 16 that we just referred to, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So now, Peter, are you telling us that we will be powerful by submitting to those who have power over us? That seems counterintuitive. Because in our culture, we think that power comes from positions of power. And we think that subordinate positions are weak positions, not powerful positions. 
So what kind of power does a humble, submissive lifestyle actually carry? It, it carries, according to Peter, two kinds of power. Power to silence people. This is the will of God. By doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And so Peter's saying the lifestyle of godly citizenship has great power to silence those who oppose Christ. It's a powerful way to shut the mouths of Christianity's critics. How? By doing good. And it's it's not the same kind of good that any citizen could do. It's a good that's according to God's will. So it's a good that comes from dependence on God and His will. And so, as I read that letter that was written in 130 A.D., we could live like those first generations of Christians. Uh, He went on to say in that letter, uh, I'll back up a little and then read you some more. He says, they live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws. Indeed, their private lives transcend the laws. Then he said this, they are cursed, yet they bless. They are insulted, yet they offer respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. And when they are punished, they rejoice as though brought to life. Those who hate them are unable to give a reason for their hostility. This submissive lifestyle of the exile is, is of such an otherworldly quality that the world around just looks and says, you ain't from around here, are you? What, what is this? Where does this come from? And then the accusations of those who hate Christ and his people uh, yes, may still go on, as we'll see in the rest of First Peter, but Peter says that it's possible that living God's truth can silence the world's lies. Okay, that's possible, but it's likely that we will go on being hated and slandered. They will still speak evil against us. Well, then... Peter goes on to say, even that lifestyle of submission that gets spoken against still has power. And it's a power to glorify God. Back in verse 12, we read this. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, and they will still do it, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What does that mean? That means that they may not glorify God right now, but on the day when Jesus comes as judge and sets all things right, our good deeds will be exposed as having submitted to God's will. And on that day, they will have to glorify God for what they've seen. So they may not do it now, but the lives we live of submissive, uh, humble submissiveness now have a power to glorify God on the day that Jesus comes back. So submission to authority actually is very powerful, Peter is saying. It has a power to silence accusers, and it has a power to glorify God. And finally, submission to authority is a picture of authentic Christianity. Verse 17 
Peter kind of ties it all together and he says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, that's your fellow Christians, fear God, honor the emperor. I want you to notice that this is a cross-shaped way of life. It's, it's got a vertical and a horizontal dimension. Uh, the vertical dimension is fear God. The horizontal dimension is honor everyone, love your brothers and sisters in Christ, and honor the emperor. So this submission to authority, this lifestyle of the exile that's submissive and subordinate and takes the low place is cross-shaped. It fears God and it honors everyone else. And the reason that it's shaped like the cross is because it's shaped like Jesus. You remember in Mark chapter 10, it's in other places, but in Mark chapter 10, James and John have come to Jesus and they've asked him for positions of power. Lord, we want you to set us at your right hand and your left hand when you come into your kingdom. In fact, other gospel writers tell us that they got their mommy to ask Jesus this. Wow. James and John, these, are, these guys would become pillars of the church. They went to Jesus and they said, we would like the supreme positions of power at your right and left hand when you come into your kingdom. And this is what Jesus said to them. He called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And we even use that phrase today. Don't lord it over me. They lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, Jesus speaking of himself says, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Not to be served, but to serve. Again, it's not the me first, hey, serve me, serve me, serve me, even looking at our authorities and saying, serve me, serve me, serve me, what have you done for me lately? But it's the you first life of looking at God and saying you first. Looking at all others on this horizontal plane, including our leaders, and saying, you first. That kind of life is unheard of in our culture, isn't it? That's so strange. Why would you live that way? Because, Peter says, we show the cross in the way we live for others. Because we've been shaped by the cross of the one who died for us. In your bulletin, I put this quote at the bottom of the sermon notes page from Pastor Scott Sauls. And I think he does a great job of summarizing what we're talking about. He says, what does it look like for Christians to live out Jesus' kingdom vision in our daily lives? It looks like taking care of widows and orphans, advocating for the poor, improving economies, paying taxes, honoring those in authority, loving our neighbors, pursuing excellence at work, and blessing those who persecute us. When this happens, kings, presidents, governors, mayors, law enforcement officers, park officials, and other public servants will take notice. 
those in authority will begin to see Christians as an asset to society, like we read in Daniel chapter 6. King Darius loved Daniel because there is an excellent spirit in him. And he served King Darius with excellence and humility to help do him good. And when Darius got tricked into making this law that would send Daniel to the lion's den, it broke his heart. And that's why he was so eager to see what had happened to Daniel the night after he was thrown into the lion's den. And when he saw that God had rescued his servant, Daniel, Darius sent a letter to the entire world to praise this God who had a servant like Daniel. Wouldn't that be awesome if that's the way we impacted those who rule over us? Well, Peter, you've given us a high bar here. (laughs) You want us to live like Jesus. Yep. But what do I do if I've already failed? If this kind of submissive lifestyle is what God requires of me, then in my heart, certainly, and probably with my lips in my life, I've already failed to be humbly subordinate to the governing authorities God has placed in my life. I have already messed that up. And besides that, I don't have the power to, to live this kind of vision of submissiveness. What do I do? How do I engage the society God has put me in? I, I, don't, I don't have what it takes. And so I, I love this by Oz Guinness. He says, the ultimate factor in the church's engagement with society is the church's engagement with God. The ultimate factor in our engagement with the society around us and with those above us is our engagement first with God. So if you're discouraged by your own lack of success and your own lack of power uh, in this lifestyle of submissiveness, then I would encourage you to engage with God. Subject yourself again to Jesus, who subjected himself to his Father for you. Paul said it this way, Jesus Though he is God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So let me leave with with this. Repent, believe, and obey. Repent of your insubordination, whether that's just been in your head, a grumbling insubordination to those God has placed in authority over you, whether that's been in your heart, a real hatred for your governing authorities, or whether that's actually been with your hands. You have, whether by gesture or other ways, you have made it clear that you will not submit. Confess that to King Jesus. He already knows And then believe the good news again that Jesus was subject to authorities for you. Do you remember when he stood before Pilate? 
Remember what Pilate told him, uh, what Jesus told Pilate? You would not have authority over me unless it were given to you from above. And Jesus didn't say, so sit down, clown, and let me tell you how this is going to go. He submitted. Jesus was subject to his father through the governing authorities. So I want to encourage you. Believe again that because of his death on the cross in your place, Jesus is the pardon for your insubordination. And then obey. Begin to obey King Jesus by changing the way you think about and relate to the governing authorities he has set over you. Start with just praying for them. That's what convicted me about this. Of all the people I pray for, I rarely pray for the governing authorities. Thank you, Dave Vernetti, for praying today for just one, one segment of governing authorities for us, the police force. Start there. Pray for a heart of humility to serve these folks. But remember, as you begin to obey Jesus by living the submissive lifestyle, that, that you have to rely on the power of Jesus Peter says in chapter 3, I've said this earlier, but I'll say it again. Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. That Jesus who saved you from your rebellion against authority, his authority, by suffering under authority in your place and mine, that Jesus lives in you by the power of his spirit, So you do have the power to live a life of submissiveness like Jesus did. And the only way that we will continue to have that power to live the lifestyle of an exile is to keep looking at Jesus who lived it first and for us. That's why we gather here every Sunday. That's why we come to this table. Father, would you come... And again, show us in this table. You've shown us in your word, now show us in this table that Jesus, though he was and is equal with you, did not, account, did not count equality with you something to hold on to, but voluntarily subordinated himself, emptied himself, even to the point of obedience to death on a cross for rebellious, insubordinate people like us. So that he could make us into submissive people like Jesus. Father, thank you. And would you, uh, in this meal now, come and strengthen your people to live the lifestyle of an exile. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.